Welcome to this BMJ COVID podcast. I'm Fee Godley, Editor-in-Chief of the BMJ, recording this on Tuesday, 1st December 2020. As England's lockdown merges into further tight restrictions with 99% of the population in restrictive tiers two and three, and Wales tightens measures in response to a further upsurge in cases. Meanwhile, the world looks to growing hopes for a vaccine that will bring an end to this pandemic. Today on the line, I have our regular contributors, Helen Salisbury. Hi, Helen. Hi, I'm a GP in Oxford. Matt Morgan. Hi, I'm an intensive care doctor based in Cardiff. And I'm really pleased to welcome back our expert guest for this week, Carl Friston. Hi there, thank you. I'm Carl Friston, I'm honorary consultant at the National Hospital for Neurology and Neurosurgery, Professor at UCL. Fantastic. I should say that Nizreen Alwan, who would normally be with us, has had to send her apologies this week due to pressure of other commitments. So, Carl, uh, welcome back. We come out of lockdown tomorrow in England. What can we say about how effective lockdown has been? That's a very pressing question, because if we understand the factors that um, bend the curve and when those factors were in play, that would say a lot about um, the way forward. So just to put this in context, looking retrospectively at the data, it appears that the prevalence of infection peaked a few weeks before the second national lockdown was announced. And that's relevant um, in the sense that um, it speaks to the efficacy of the tier system and all the accompanying sort of personal um, behaviours that we engaged in prior to the second national lockdown. Um, in contrast to the uh, to some of the predictions um, from uh, epidemiological modelling of unmitigated responses, um, at around the 5th of November, around bonfire night, it looks as if the uh, the prevalence infection was actually declining um, and all the metrics that we have available um, endorse that. Uh, apart from the fatality rates, which seem to be slowing much more slowly than many of the other measures that we have at hand. Now, the question is, um, were all of those tiers um, efficacious in reducing replication and transmission? And um, as... Uh, most of you will know yesterday we um, the report um, underwriting the government's proposals for, for the winter plan and the coming out of lockdown was published received less warmly than one might have anticipated by virtue of the fact it was not really um, it didn't define quantitatively the threshold criteria that we need to know in order to decide how to move from one tier to another tier. So at the present, all we know is that there are going to be five criteria covering things from the prevalence of infection through to rates of change of the prevalence of infection, uh, specifically in the over 60 year olds, um, the um, rate uh, or occupancy of uh, hospital beds. So these criteria are going to be somehow mixed together to define certain uh, thresholds that will dictate whether you move from one uh, one tier to the next tier. So we only had, uh, was it about three weeks of the three-tier system before going into national lockdown? And what you're saying is there's some evidence that those were working. 
Um, and the, the, the new three-tier system that we may go into if the vote goes through Parliament today um, is different in what ways? I mean, how, what would you say, in what way has that been tweaked? Um, and does that make sense to you? Um, you know, there, there are lots of questions around it, but I think most people uh, would endorse some form of flexible, regional, targeted, adaptive response that can um, respond, or a machinery that can respond to hotspots of prevalence around the country. The precise details, though, leave people um, with concerns because they are not, uh, they are not, um, ha they have not yet uh, been made so explicit. But the sense is that they are going to be more rigorous with questions about the utility or the efficacy of tier one. So some people are suggesting that tier one is, if you like, has been introduced um, uh, in an aspirational sense. It's something that one can work towards. So it's not so much about the sort of the public health um, efficacy of being in tier one, but more about the public messaging and contextualizing for people, you know, what they could achieve if they were compliant with the restrictions of tier, uh, tier three or tier two. And, and we've heard yesterday, I think, that Wales has gone into new restrictions. Um, Matt is uh, in Wales. <laughs> uh, how does that, how's that landed, Matt? And, and I'm interested in Carl's sense about, you know, how Wales is doing. Yeah, quite a different approach in Wales. You know, we had this earlier, shorter lockdown, which there was some early data, uh, different from the REACT study, but other data which suggested that may have been effective in reducing numbers, which, which is great. Uh, and now we've been in a flat restriction since then. But as from Friday, this Friday at 6pm, cafes, restaurants, bars are not able to serve alcohol at all in Wales. And they'll also have to stop serving food or soft drinks from 6pm, actually. So uh, a very different approach, one which, again, the government say is in response to increasing prevalence in numbers, uh, and one which will affect industries a huge amount. You know, one in 10 people in Wales work in the hospitality industry. Brains Brewer, which I cycle past on my way to work and I can always smell when the hops are brewing you know have come out pretty strongly uh, against this move but there has been uh, there is a large financial support package but the, yeah it's it's going to be tough and you know I don't think anybody who knows the data who sees patients who speaks to families have an issue with that absolute I guess the tricky thing is the inequality between that and what will happen, of course, over the Christmas period, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very glad it's not me having to make these decisions because at the, at the base of them is always what is an acceptable level of death balanced against the economic damage and the other harms from, from the lockdown, which are huge. And that's a really difficult decision to have to make. I think one of the things that is... In the information, you can find it on the website that part of the calculations are to do with NHS capacity in different regions. And there was a lot to be thought about to do with actually how much spare did we have? How much were we struggling last year? And there are places with just not, actually quite a lot of the UK, not enough hospital beds as a routine. When I mean beds, I mean staff, nurses, doctors, um, the ability to look after people. 
And, and it's that that has, to an extent, fed our need to really shut down hard because we, we can't risk overwhelming a system which was already overwhelmed in lots of other years as well. And it's going to be much worse. So, so there's that, that kind of under provision that underlies some of the, 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 the decisions about we must have the toughest restrictions here because we just don't have the capacity. I'm also just a little bit worried about tiers in terms of how, how leaky they are. Um, because if you're in tier one, I was looking this morning, uh, you can actually have outdoor gatherings of up to 4,000 people and indoor gatherings of up to 1,000 people. And um, that kind of doesn't make much sense to me. Unless you've got travel restrictions, what's to stop an enormous number of people traveling from tier three to tier one um, and bringing their COVID with them? I, I, unless there's something that I have that I've missed. Well, that was something that, Carl, you talked about when we first uh, met a few weeks ago about how you felt that the Welsh approach of having limiting people to five miles of their house seemed to make a lot of sense. Yes, no, a, a very important point. So just from the, um, the point of view of the epidemiology of viral spread, um, we have to think about you know, the different scales, bubbles within bubbles. You know, so we have between person spread, uh, we have between household spread, and we have between community spread, between region spread. And each of these kinds of spread comes equipped with its own mitigation strategy. So like social two meter distancing, wearing face masks at the person to person, um, lockdown, local lockdowns in terms of household work at home, in terms of household transmission. But as you get to, to the sort of bigger bubbles, the, 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 you know, the larger scales we're talking about, cordon sanitaires, indeed, at the level of countries, we're talking about sort of quarantine and restrictions in terms of uh, border controls. All of these things work hand in hand. Um, and you have to keep your eye on all of them or things will get out of control. I imagine that the government's um, decision to put rather large regions into different tiers, even though some parts of a county may have experienced very few infections um, uh, but are still lumped in you know in, in, within a larger region is driven in part by the very point that that, that, that Fiona I think you're speaking to which is um, to preclude the leakiness between wards and boroughs and local authorities which is you know, obviously a, a sensible and good thing but also I suspect in part because the Joint Biosecurity Centre only has access to the kind of data it needs to make these criteria or judgments on a larger spatial and a scale. Little uh, elaboration of that is also looking at bed occupancy now compared to this time last year. Um, and actually, sometimes it looks as though well, we haven't got as many patients as we had last year. We, why would we have a problem? Well, we have a problem because the way you can operate in COVID means that you can look after fewer patients because of the spacing you need between them, because the endless donning and doffing and separating of staff groups and all of those things that mean we are actually less time efficient and less space and staff efficient than we were um, non uh, pre-COVID. So actually that there are a lot of, there's lots of quite misleading data out there and graphs which are purported to show hey, we haven't got a problem, why are you panicking? Um, from I, I don't know what the agenda is of the people who like to say there isn't a problem because 
those of us who work in the service know there is a problem, but there are people out there with that agenda. And there are lots of ways of presenting data which makes it look as if there isn't a problem where, unfortunately, there is. And just for clarification, the Welsh travel, that five-mile point was in place, but now we have Wales-wide travel, but not out of Wales and not into Wales. So I can drive from Cardiff to Bangor, for example, but I can't drive to Bristol. Uh, so that's the, the current state of play. I think one really important point that you've all brought up about reserve and capacity but one way that this is clouded and made more confusing is because I think government on one hand want to show that they've made surge capacity and extra capacity available. But what does that mean in reality? So in critical care in Wales, for example, we have 152 beds. They are at 100% capacity already. And many local intensive care regions are, are struggling. That's not just COVID. That's normal winter pressures too. But if you look at the graphs put out in media and other places, you see this nice big buffer zone of excess, as, it, as they call them, unoccupied beds. And of course, there is no such thing. Those beds don't exist. And beds are just beds. If all people needed to get better was a bed, they could stay at home. Of course, what you need is facilities, staff, scale, medications, all of those services. So I, I think that capacity data and discussion for the public, it's probably quite confusing, actually. They see that, it, uh, it, ways... are they the, nighting, the nightingale beds, Matt, that the government well, is talking no, about? No, they're not even just the nightingale beds. These, This is effectively money and surge capacity, which trusts had to sign up to say they could go into if needed. But that doesn't mean that A, it's there. <laughs> it doesn't mean that B, it's staffed. And it C, it certainly doesn't mean that it's staffed well or run well. Um, and, and I think that's a really hard thing to get across to the public when they're seeing graphs with this big buffer capacity, which in, is just theoretical capacity. This is very interesting hearing the discussion about the Nightingale hospitals because it's like saying we've got these thousands of beds and therefore it doesn't matter if people get sick because we can accommodate them. And, and on one hand, you can see that argument. You can say, well, we don't want the NHS to be overwhelmed. We want people, non-COVID people to get really good treatment as well. But it's this concept that, that we can just expand and people can get sick and, and therefore we, you know, it doesn't matter quite so much. I find that very interesting psychology. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I've written a piece actually that hopefully will be out in the BMJ soon where I think we need to move beyond this concept of beds and even counting beds. You know, what we should be talking about is how many people can you care for? And that's exactly the point Helen has made. You know, it, it, it's dependent on condition. It's dependent on time of year. It's dependent on staff sickness rates. It's dependent on so many things. And this metric of X number of beds is just a falsity, really, which is there for accounting purposes. But translating that to the reality of care is just not possible. And if anything, it brings in confusion for the profession and absolutely, I suspect, for the public. Carl, any thoughts on this? 
Oh, well, I was just thinking confusion for, for the profession, the public, and I think the government. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, so just come back to, to a point that, that, that Matt um, um, and Helen actually brought up, which is, you know, having a broader um, quantitative approach to the costs of doing this or that. Uh, you, know, I, 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 the, the, you know, the issue of... Um, how many people you can care for clearly touches upon the people that you're not caring for. So the routine uh, health services that are compromised by caring for COVID. And that talks then to all the other kinds of costs that just as an aside, you know, the messaging about sort of, is the NHS overwhelmed cuts both ways. If you tell people the NHS is overwhelmed, you are going to discourage people from presenting to the GP or to accident emergency. And that probably is one of the main drivers of non-COVID uh, collateral morbidity and mortality during the first wave. And can we just talk then about how regions or areas get out of t- tier three into tier two and out of tier two into tier one? Um, Liverpool began uh, lockdown in tier three and has come out of it into tier two, and that's being presented as a success for the mass population asymptomatic testing that's been going on. Um, and and the other question to throw into this bit of the conversation is about what if we had had a functioning track and trace system at some stage in the last few months, which we still don't have. I think most people would agree. Um, you know, has has the has the modelling been done um, about you know how how we move between tiers? What what encouragement can we give people for ways out? Um, so yeah, excellent question. Um, so. As you know, uh, as a uh, panelist on the independent stage, that that has been our one and consistent message: you know, sort of um, um, good old-fashioned public health measures predicated on contact tracing and supported isolation. I'm sure Helen's going to have some something to say about the you know, the the impact of poverty on the capacity of people to isolate. Uh, so that side of the story, that really important um, uh, sort of mitigation and strategic response seems to have been suppressed in the excitement of the second surge and the tier system and yet is the is the final answer uh, my impression is that um the, the liverpool experience um can be read both positively and negatively so nice because it shows there's now an increasing uh, engagement between the national and the local teams and that's a good thing the um the role of the mass testing in, in actually bending the curve is much more questionable. So that's the, the negative aspect that it seems to have been used by the government as evidence that mass testing is somehow a panacea, but it's clearly not. The panacea is the benefits of engaging with local um, local teams in terms of being able to identify the contacts of confirmed cases so that you can support them in isolation. And then you have to confront the vexed issue of what will happen if people cannot isolate for lots of reasons. And indeed, what's going to happen if they avoid mass testing? Because the last thing they want to know is that they have to self-isolate because they can't self-isolate. They have to go out and provide money for their family um, or indeed buy some Christmas presents. So, you know, I think that that issue really deserves a lot of attention. I don't know if Helen wants to speak to that from the point of view of, you know, the poverty angle. I mean, I think there's also a question about uh, the risk of 
testing at the wrong time and giving false reassurance. Um, there's, there's an issue about the accuracy of the, of the test and whether they're actually giving true inf information, so whether they're helpful. Um, so I, I think there are a lot of questions to be asked about the testing. Um, uh, just going back to the, the, the testing and tracing as a, as, a, as a really important way of helping us to get on, on top of this epidemic. Um, people often, I know in Wales, uh, they introduced this concept of a fire break and this analogy between virus and, and fire and flames and this concept that if you'd actually put out the embers in the summer with a decent track and trace system, um, we wouldn't have fire springing up all over when, when autumn came and everyone back, went back to school. And the, 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 the icing on the cake of this analogy that I heard, mixing my metaphors a bit, um, was a, uh, a question of how, how did you organise it in the first place? Who thought that when there's a big fire, what you need to do is call the accountants? Why not call the fire brigade? Um, and similarly, when you've got a pandemic, why do we call the accountants or the management consultants? Why didn't we call the doctors and the public health? We, we call the modelers, Helen, and here's Carl. With <laughs> ah, yeah, no, absolutely fine. I'm absolutely fine with the modelers. But it's a question of, you know, actually right at the beginning of this, we, we, maybe we didn't engage with the right people, particularly in terms of test and trace. We know people, we, we have loads of people out there who do know how to run a campaign. I know this, um, this is maybe an old argument and maybe just now beginning to engage with the people, certainly locally here, our local public health people are just beginning to, to get involved. And I know in Wales, they've been involved right from the start. Um, and they've worked it much better in Wales than they than they have here. But it has been kind of, we asked the wrong people to do the job. Is it surprising that we ended up with a system that didn't work? I think it's, it's yeah, it's logistics, isn't it? We needed people who understood about how to how to uh, do operations and logistics um, on the ground. And, and maybe those people are now just beginning to emerge, get the confidence up. Uh, to feel that this is their role when at the beginning of the pandemic they just weren't approached or or, or, or brought in at the right moment. Carl. Going back to the other question that Carl was asking which is about why what are the limits and I'm sure the limits are to do with people's ability to do the right thing to stop the spread of the virus if they are diagnosed and therefore they're complete unwillingness to even risk being diagnosed if they can't afford to do those things and if you think about those the nightingale hospitals for example how about we had instead of making lots of bed spaces with no staff to look after them we had made lots of spaces where people could go and rest for two weeks and be looked after um where they could isolate away from their from their home for example um you know there were lots of other ways one might have spent that money or used that space and that resource that may have helped more with controlling this pandemic than creating um, beds uh, with, with no staff, which eventually weren't used. Uh, not Liverpool particularly, but again, touching on that poverty issue, you know, mass testing in Wales has happened in some places. It's happened in Merthyr, which is one of the most deprived economic places in Wales. You know, it's an ex-mining community where unemployment is high. In fact, nearly 50% of children in, on a, a report some years ago lived in poverty in, in Merthyr. 
Uh, and again, you know, that's where mass testing is most needed in some ways, but it's also where people understandably have the most to lose from that uh, because the kind of employment which is there as well isn't often supported by sick leave and understanding employers and all those other aspects. So it does feel like this double-edged sword, the communities that need these interventions the most, need people to isolate the most, are also the communities which have the toughest time in many ways. And are bearing the, the brunt of that. There was a very moving thing on the BBC yesterday about Burnley, which was very hard to watch, of people really, really absolutely on, on, on their, on their um, final um, economic uppers. Um, and, and, you know, how, how I think little we, most of us, realise that is the full extent of not only the, the existing poverty, but the effect of the pandemic on, on people as well. Carl? Well, just to endorse that, with the, you know, coming back to the Liverpool, um, I think only 4% of people from deprived areas in Liverpool um, uh, presented themselves for the, the mass testing. Um, and I also heard... Um, um, via uh, one of the members of parliament that 80% of the applications for the grants to support self-isolation were being declined from the poorer people. So th there is a real issue here, which, which um, is part of this sort of um, test, trace and supported isolation package, which is you know, the ultimate goal of the, um, you know, of the public health response to this. Just, just, I can't resist just um, repeating, uh, you know, some observations by colleagues on the Independent Sage about, you know, calling in the accountants as opposed to the fire brigade or the, you know, the, the experts in infectious disease control. If you just listen to the way that the problem is cast from the point of view of the people in charge, it tells you a lot about their your, their attitude and their skill set. So Dida Harding complaining that she was caught by a, her own product when she had to self-isolate when her app, you know, told her that she'd been in contact with somebody who was infected. Um, you know, clearly revealing a mindset that the people in charge of this consider themselves delivering a product. They're marketizing the problem. Again, comparing the challenges of um, NHS test and trace to the logistics problems uh, faced by Amazon. Again, these people are, are looking at this as you know, delivering a product and a service, uh, monetizing it, which, which is the sort of language which is almost endearing, but you would certainly not hear from an expert in public health. It's a completely different kind of mindset. So. I think she, she actually claimed that she'd built a retail operation bigger than Asda. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, we laugh, but the laughter is rather hollow, I feel. Mine anyway. <laughs> Carl, carry on. So yes, yeah, so it's coming back to the testing, uh, the, the, uh, the, sort of the, the, the downside of the way that the mass testing in Liverpool has been played speak to the principles of testing. So why are you testing? Are you testing to release? Are you testing because you're a doctor? You know you want to know whether this patient should go to a COVID or a non-COVID ward. Are you testing because you're an epidemiologist from the Joint Biosecurity Centre to, to deploy resources to the to, you know, to this area? So the motivation for the testing um, you know, is absolutely crucial in, in defining how you best use these resources, and particularly with the lateral flow tests that have a low sensitivity and specificity 
you you know they have to be used very very carefully so i think there's going to be need to be a lot more um nuanced conversation about how you're using testing and why you're using it because you know there are at least three very very different reasons for testing and all have conflicting agendas if you like uh, motivations which you know which need to be thought about very carefully i don't see that careful ontology of motivations being discussed um or used in the way that sort of mass testing is being rolled out by the government at the moment. And just to say on that, thanks, Carl, that, that yesterday I spoke to Callum Semple, who's one of the senior clinicians on the uh, at the Liverpool University um, helping to evaluate the mass testing, and he's also on SAGE. Um, and um, many of these issues I, I did put to him, so people might want, want to listen to that. But I think one of the issues is, is the, the government... Uh, decided they were going to do this in Liverpool. There's been a kind of scrabble to evaluate it. I don't think it's uh, this derogatory to call it that, you know, but very short uh, uh, um, time frames in which to try to overlay an evaluation onto what was decided anyway was going to happen by, by the government. Uh, so it's a very interesting issue. We, we obviously need to watch it with care. Carl, you are so polite. I love your phrase about the lack of careful ontology, but actually... This was political, wasn't it? That was the reason for the mass testing. It was about what they call the optics, I'm afraid. I don't think it was about the science. And we may be scrabbling to find good scientific reasons for doing it and trying to work out exactly what we're trying to do at this late stage. And I'm sure the good academics of Liverpool are doing that. But it's kind of covering up something that was a political move. Um, and I just... I, the thing that really galls me most is the opportunity cost and what else we could have spent that money on. And that's really been something that's gone all the way through the pandemic. The opportunity cost of misspending this money on the wrong PPE providers and the wrong sort of test and trace. And, and the kind of uh, you'll sense the frustration in my voice. And I absolutely applaud your politeness, Carl, in the way you express it. Can we move on to another uh, thing that is confronting us is the return of university students home uh, before Christmas. There too, we have um, voluntary but but mass screening using lateral flow tests uh, with this low sensitivity, which will leave many cases undetected and students perhaps being, uh, or whatever they're being told, may then feel that they're safe to hug their grandparents um, on return home. Uh, how, how is that playing out in your in your various worlds, Matt? How does that play out in Wales? Yeah, it's certainly going on, and we've had testing of student groups in some of the big universities in Wales anyway, ongoing in partnership with the universities and government, especially for those uh, medical students, for example. Uh, so that system has somewhat been up and running. But again, you know, it's just a concern around how the tests are used, what kinds of tests. We all know pre-test probability is really important uh, when you're doing tests. And if you're testing a group with an already low pre-test probability, then that will impact on tests even greater. Um, and, you know, we'll talk about Christmas, but I think one of the other BMJ economists, David Oliver, said the quote slightly tongue-in-cheek, I think, that a bad decision is not just for Christmas. Uh, and making informed decisions around these issues are complex enough without the complexity of, of testing and subgroups. So, you know, I, I really feel for people who are having to make decisions this Christmas, us included, us all as 
as husbands and wives and daughters and sons. Carl, what what do you feel about the the, the plans for university students' return? Um, it's a delicate issue. Um, you know, unlike you know um, making Christmas plans to see elderly relatives or leave your old young um, your younger relatives, I just common sense suggests that university students don't really have that kind of choice. They probably do have to go home. Um, um, and in that, uh, under that um, assumption that they probably do have to go home, um, then the question is, how can you go home safely? Um, so I think in this instance, the other sort of the low sensitivity specificity test to release or to provide some degree of um, reassurance that which may be a false reassurance that you're not going to um, take the virus back to your loved ones is probably a, a useful use of uh, of uh, sort of mass testing i think i think it is a useful adjunct it's a you know it's a nice toolkit to make informed decisions so of course those informed decisions will entail or include um you know the, the, the self-isolation before you go home. I think that's sort of a big mechanism that you can apply in your own life if you want to spend time with your loved ones around the Christmas period, uh, to be absolutely sure, to be totally um, safe, than to put yourself in self-isolation for a period of 10 days beforehand. Um, and of course, this then leads on to questions, uh, should this be something that schools should be thinking about? Should there be um, uh, should schools close on, say, the 11th of December to ensure that there is, you know, a period of relative isolation before the, the family celebrations? Helen, you... I was merely going to pick up the point that Carl just said. It seems crazy for schools not to change to doing completely online so that there's a two-week gap. I mean, I think if we think about Christmas ultimate multi-generational get-together, which looks like it's going to be a super spreader event, probably, unless people um, ignore the government advice and actually decide this isn't a sensible thing to do. But if people are going to get together to be COVID secure in any sense, people need to have been isolating for the two weeks before that. And it seems to be a recipe for disaster for teenagers to be in school mixing with hundreds of other pupils in lots of cases and staff and then within a week seeing grandma and grandpa so i i it seems a complete no-brainer that that schools should should spend their last week um online or take the you know finish the term early or something which i think will be vital if we're going to avoid big surge of COVID just as we were about to get the vaccine. Thanks for that segue, Helen, because I was going to ask about, about the vaccine. Um, still waiting for further details from all three of the, the, the front runners at the moment, um, hoping that we will get more data. Concerns about this rather strange business of the half dose of the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, apparently giving greater protection than two doses. Um, how do people feel about uh, both the data that we've been shown so far and also plans for uh, rolling out the vaccine in the UK? Uh, do we feel people will take it up? Do we feel that um, we have the uh, 
the organisation on the ground to make this work. Uh, Carl, what are your thoughts on the vaccine? Um, my thoughts are largely informed by sort of internal discussions between the public health experts and independent sage and the virologists. So that there seems the first thing is that um, the take up, which is clearly going to be important, is going to be largely dependent upon a degree of epistemic trust in the um, both the um, the licensing and the endorsing of the safety of these uh, vaccines with a particular eye on not the anti-vaxxers, but people with sort of you know, a, a vaccination hesitancy, an understandable concern, um, not relieved by the, um, the time pressure to get this vaccine out there. Um, and little practical things. So it's been, you know, in, in terms of behavioral studies, if you are going to get your vaccination in the GP surgery from a health professional, that has a very, very different kind of feel and will have a very different um, impact in terms of take-up than if you have to drive to a sports centre and have it delivered by somebody in the army. So, so Matt and Helen, should we mandate, should healthcare professionals be um, required to have this vaccine? I'm not in favour of ever requiring people to have vaccinations. I just don't think that's helpful. Um, my reading so far about the vaccines have um, been very reassuring in terms of the safety profile of the ones that have been tested, and I'm sure they will be tested to the hilt and, and, and um, uh, will be safe by the time they're, they're rolled out. Um, I think in terms of efficacy, it would be nice to have slightly more robust figures because I think we just don't quite know because they've been quite small. I mean, in terms of the number of people who've actually had COVID in either group, there must be some quite large margins there for us knowing how effective these vaccines are. But I think they're likely to be more, more effective than, for example, the influenza vaccine, which has quite a high um, rate of take-up. We've certainly hit higher figures in the over 75s for take-up of flu vaccine than we have ever in previous years. It's, it's, it's quite remarkable. Um, in terms of actually delivering it, you're asking about the logistics fee. I mean, it's the one of the issues is we still don't know which vaccine. And on that depends how we do it. We've been told we should be ready to have 10 days notice of delivery of a thousand uh, doses, just slightly under, and be able to give those doses to people within five days of, of receiving them. That's actually quite a big ask in terms of the organisation and the logistics of contacting all those people and slotting in them to slots and getting them there to give that thing. Now, if actually we end up having the Oxford vaccine instead, because that is predicated on the the Pfizer type, which has a short shelf life and a certain de defined size of, um, of of pack that you have to have. If it's the Oxford vaccine instead, it'll be different and we'll do things differently. So we're a bit stymied in terms of getting ahead of ourselves and organising things by not knowing the details, the details being particularly which vaccine. 
Yeah, I'm too generally not in favour of using care in a punitive manner or in a mandated manner. You know, the word that Carl used was trust. And for me, trust and mandate don't really go very well together. Although, of course, you know, there are some situations already where people at high risk of hepatitis need to show hepatitis vaccination or serology before working in some sectors. If you go to some parts of Africa, you have to show your yellow fever vaccination certificate. So mandating in terms of access to some privileges already happens in life to some extent. I'm, I've heard talk about going to the cinema, you'll have to show a passport, for example. I'm not sure whether that level is the right thing. But what do we do about patients having elective surgery, for example, elective non-cancer surgery in a green stream, in a non-COVID stream? Will those be the times where showing evidence of vaccination is discussed? Again, it's it's such a tricky one, but I think that will be where the crux comes down. In terms of safety, of course, we talk about safety in this way, a huge amount for vaccines, not so much for other drugs, which are newly licensed. Now, even the newest MRA vaccine was tested on over 43,000 people and a new drug that comes into license in the NHS, you know, those discussions probably don't happen to that extent. If anything, now is the time more than ever that education, public comms, it, getting people who are experts at science communication, be it from the BBC, the nudge unit of the government that have been used to encourage people to pay their taxes on time. Surely this is the time to bring these experts out, these experts together to help inform trust and to help help the public effectively. And there's talk of, of leadership in terms of uptake of the vaccine and, and um, you know, should all of us be at the front of the queue if we were offered the vaccine to rolling up our sleeve and showing the world that we trust this vaccine and think it's a good thing to do? Um, I think so. Actually, I'm, I'm in a slight dilemma here because I've been in the trial from the beginning, so I don't know, I might have already had it. Um, but I was, uh, I thought it was worth trying. I trusted the scientists enough to, to try an experimental vaccine, um, possibly. So I, I actually do think there is a, there is a, a place for, for, for leadership and, and example. And finally, everyone, um, if the vaccine is beginning to lift people's spirits, the prospect of one anyway, um, any uh, fascinating facts or things that we could leave our listeners with that will leave them feeling a bit positive about the future? Matt? Well, one thing that Carl mentioned earlier, actually, was the impact of social distancing and measures we're doing on the normal respiratory pathogens. You know, the amount of RSV and seasonal influenza and other viruses going around is tiny. And I wonder whether in the coming years, in the next five years, the way we've managed this will teach us as much about those non-COVID respiratory pathogens, changing of behaviour in a seasonal way for seasonal influenza and other diseases as much in many ways as COVID. And I, I look forward to seeing some of that literature maybe coming out over the following years. Helen. What I learned today was absolutely fascinating, was about something about long COVID and um, about a new imaging technique that they've been trying um, in Oxford using xenon um, and actually managing to 
show scarring of the lungs or some damage to the lungs, which wasn't visible um, in other imaging modalities. And for some of my patients, that's actually really important for the patients who have been saying, I know I should be better now by now, but I still can't breathe properly. And who have sadly had the response, um, well, we can't find anything wrong. There's nothing wrong with your lungs. Um, and actually, obviously we don't know how what that exactly that damage is or how what we can do to make it better but it's definitely a step forward to be able to say to them ah oh, yes we can see there's something going on and I think that would be quite helpful for some of those long COVID patients. Carl? In terms of happy news well the second surge is now over um, the vaccine is probably going to be more efficient and quick in taking us towards um the suppression of community transmission than you might imagine for exactly the same reasons that we've talked about previously in, um, in terms of the heterogeneity, um, over-dispersion, uh, the dark matter that complicates the picture. So all the arguments that have now, I think, been largely accepted in academia um, that spoke to the, um, the, the, the potential for good contact tracing actually also apply to vaccination, which simply means that we do not need to get 60 to 70% of the population vaccinated. It will only require about 20% and it'll happen much more quickly than conventional epidemiology would suggest. So I, I think that you know, we're talking about, if all goes to plan, we're talking about coming out of this at Easter as opposed to summer. Again, that's going to be wildly optimistic and we get totally told off with it. We're probably wrong, but you wanted something optimistic, so that is it. Very grateful for those positive comments. Thanks to Helen Salisbury, Matt Morgan and Carl Friston. As always, we want to cover the issues that matter to you. So do let us know via social media if you have a topic you'd like us to cover or a specific question we could answer. We'll be coming back weekly with these Second Wave podcasts. So subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts. I'm Fee Godley and I'll be back next week. Until then, goodbye and thanks for listening.